Hey there, entrepreneurs, and welcome to this week's episode. If you did not go back and check out or have not checked out yet the episodes in the month of May, they are all about the money. So you are definitely going to want to go back and check out the amazing guests and the amazing solo episodes we had in the month of May. But welcome to June, everybody. And for right now, I am jumping in with the incredible Amy Stanton. Let's go. Ever found yourself teetering on the edge of throwing in the towel? You know, asking yourself questions like, is this supposed to be this hard? Or is it even possible to succeed at this entrepreneur thing? I completely get it because I built my successful businesses while juggling major health issues for my children and myself, debt piling up to my eyeballs and so much more. Want to know how the hell I succeeded and how you can too? Tune in to find out. Here we go. Hey there, entrepreneurs, and welcome to today's show. Now, some of you may have seen me post this author's book on IG because I was a little, well, I still am a little obsessed with it. So I'm really excited to have Amy Stanton on the show today. And she's the founder and CEO of Stanton and Company, co-author of the book I was just talking about, which is The Feminine Revolution, an avid dancer and a dog mom, folks. So all of those things I just love. So Amy, thank you so much for being here with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Of course, I would love any conversation with you. I love it. Thank you. All right, so let's dive in. So tell us about your journey because I know you had some like unexpected twists and turns in your career and your life. So, and I mean, to be running your own CE, I mean, being a CEO of your own PR company, that's pretty amazing. So tell us about it. Yes, well, it's so funny because as a self-proclaimed control freak, (laughs) I've realized that some of the best moments in my career have come from when I've actually let go of that control and just allowed things to unfold. So I started in advertising. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I did have in the back of my mind the feeling that I eventually wanted to start my own business because everybody in my family is an entrepreneur. So I wouldn't say they made it look easy because being an entrepreneur, as you well know, is not easy, but they made it look possible. And, right. and also for all the reasons that people love being an entrepreneur, I sort of, I saw it firsthand from a very young age. I was literally in my parents' office filing at, at probably before it was acceptable for me to be doing that. Um, but it really inspired me. So it, I, I figured I'd start in advertising and get a good business background. And I worked at big ad agencies on big brands like Pizza Hut and Zantac 75, not at the same time, although those two things can go hand in hand. Exactly. I did not good combo. <laughs> it's a wonderful learning experience first to understand how to sell the pizza and then how to help the people address the pizza. But, um, I really learned a lot and I, I definitely never had that thing that I I'm like, Oh, I want to be the CEO of a big ad agency. I just knew I wanted to keep powering through and rising the ranks. And I was probably a pain in the ass, to be honest with you, because I was so impatient. I just, I was like, I am going to work as many hours as necessary to be able to do my boss's job with hopes that he or she would then be elevated, of course. But I look back and I'm like, I'm sure I drove everybody crazy. 
Uh, and after a number of different agencies and really learning quite a bit, I ran the marketing and PR for New York's Olympic bid. This is the first major twist in turn because when a former boss, my dear friend, Jane Gundell reached out to me, she said, I have the perfect job for you. It's the director of marketing and communications for New York's Olympic bid. I said, Jane, I don't know anything about sports or the Olympics. And I'm from Los Angeles. I'm not even sure it's a good idea to bring the Olympics to New York. But she said, just go meet Dan Doctoroff and trust me on this. And she was right. I truly ended up being a once in a lifetime type of opportunity, but a great example of really taking a chance on something, because at that point we were competing for the U.S. nomination, which could have only been six months if we hadn't won. And then we went on to the international competition, lost to London. But it was particularly magical because it was right after 9-11. So it was a time where the city was rebuilding and New Yorkers were looking for any sort of bright light to hold on to. And the bid represented that, the future. And I look back now and see all of the different projects that were initiated during the Olympic bid. And I'm so wowed by it. I mean, just stuff that that couldn't have happened without that moment in time. And that really did improve the city, even though we never hosted the Olympics. Yeah. So... After that, I was exhausted and ready to retire. You think that's it wasn't an option? I was still a child, really. In hindsight, I, it's crazy because I was really young. I was like, I turned thirty while I was doing that job, and I, I it's it's crazy. I mean, I see this is because I was so impatient in the early days. You know, I really. <laughs> I cranked it out, but I, I look back and I'm like, wow, someone trusted me to be presenting in these board meetings with all the important people in New York city. And I was 30 years old, you know, it just makes no sense to me in hindsight, but it, but, you know, taking a chance, sort of putting all of your rational thinking about something aside, those are the only reasons I ended up in that job. Thank God. And then from there, I had these great opportunities. Someone had was, that I'd worked closely with was on the board of Martha Stewart, and they were looking for a chief marketing officer. And once again, I had never watched the television show, read the magazine, used any of her products, but suddenly I was the perfect person to be the CMO of Martha Stewart. But I went to meet her. I mean, I met the whole team and met her and was super fired up about it because she's the ultimate entrepreneur. Yeah. And yeah. I felt like, aside from it being a big challenge because she was just coming back from jail, I also felt like there were so many reasons why this would be a great next step. So I did. And I was there for less than a year. And speaking of twists and turns, my job was eliminated, which I saw the writing on the wall. I wasn't really able to get anything done. It was challenging. You know, there were some great, beautiful moments. But even prior to when that happened, I'd already started mapping out starting my own business. Um, but I was traumatized by that. I'm not going to deny it. Even if I was already planning on leaving, I was traumatized because I had only been used to being this superstar that was thriving, whatever I did, even against all the odds. And this was not that, um, but you know what, sometimes I do think we need a real kick in the pants. And I had, even though I had started contemplating starting my own business, I wasn't doing it. So this made it happen. And, uh, and so I had this started with a business partner and she had representation experience. I had this vision of building this mini IMG focused on the women's space and women's sports specifically. Cause no, I looked at the role models we had at that time and felt like we needed yeah, some help. 
there weren't any. And, you know, I still think about it because I mean, this was 15 years ago. We still have room to grow, of course, but you look at all the incredible women we can look at across areas now. There's just, there's definitely our powerful women in the limelight and we get to actually learn from them, be inspired by them. At the time, this was less the case. And women's sports was so underrepresented. So I started this company thinking we'd have representation and consulting and events and content and all these things, PR. And suddenly I was a sports agent. Again, last thing on earth I ever expected. I grew up in LA thinking- That is a lot of PR though, agents. Like that is, you have to be good at it, right? Yeah, it's true. You can't just be like, I'm really good at business, but suck at the PR if you're going to be an agent. You're right. Maybe it is a thing and I haven't come across it yet, but I haven't seen it before. No, you're right. I mean, it's so much of it is about sort of the same sort of hunger and- perseverance and, um, like fearlessness about asking for things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it (laughs) right there. We're not teaching you anything else in this. It's just that. Cause if you look at it, that's like your track record, everything you've said you've done. It's like, you know, either it's kind of naivety where it's like, I didn't know I couldn't. So what the hell, right? Or, or, you know, that fearlessness in just jumping and knowing that you'll learn something for good, bad, or ugly, or worse, or whatever the saying is, right? Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And I, I think, you know, I'm a perfectionist. So for someone like me, taking chances like that or doing yeah. things that might not work out, it just was something that even came as a surprise to me that I was capable of that. You know, <laughs> I definitely could, could have seen myself in an alternate universe taking a much safer path. But you think your drive kind of counteracted your perfectionism? Maybe. I mean, I definitely had a feeling that, yeah, I was always hunting for something. I don't know what that, I still don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I just, I have yeah a lot of ambition and I feel there's so much potential and I get really like fueled. I'm fueled by that kind of progress. And so Right. I guess that's it. But so here we are. I mean, basically a hundred years later, I, uh, after the first couple of years as a sports agent, my business evolved so that now we're really focused on healthy, active living and representing athletes on the, as a sports agent is still part of what we do, but the bulk of the business is actually representing brands and individuals on the PR side. And PR is now essentially a rebrand of what used to be considered marketing because now it includes influencer engagement and partnerships and all kinds of things, anything and everything that's going to help us generate media results. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's interesting because a lot of people don't understand that number one, marketing and PR are two different things. Um, but I think, like you said, the overlap between them is becoming a lot more blurry than it used to be. It's right. So true. It's yeah. so true. And, and PR used to really be this afterthought where we would basically all sit around a table, come up with a big ad campaign concept. And then the PR agency would go off and figure out creative ways to amplify that. Right now the PR team sits at the table and goes, okay, let's figure out what elements we have to work with. that can be amplified. Let's figure out what else we can create that can be amplified. It's all about that, especially because budgets are leaner than ever. And people have to be a little bit smarter about every penny spent. And so it's cool because I feel like we're right in the middle of this changing landscape and seeing things literally as they're happening. Someone asked me yesterday, 
I'm working actually on an article about how to stay. He said relevant. And I said competitive because relevant just sounds a little bit like we're in the dark ages. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we don't want to just stay relevant. We have yeah, we to stay be- ahead of it. You know, it's almost like, what are we thinking about? That's for tomorrow, not for today. Yes. And how do we keep an eye and ear to the ground to ensure that that's the case? So that's where yeah. I'm at now. I mean, that's why I feel like our industry is that. And essentially, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much an overlap with I do too, with what I do too, which is strategic planning, right? Like you can't, I don't understand people who are like, let's just look at this right now. If you're triaging a problem, yeah, fine. Or if it's crisis control or if it's any of that stuff, okay, fine. But if you are not constantly thinking, I mean, long-term marathon, not a sprint, then I have a really hard problem thinking that you're going to be in business very long because like that, or to your point, you're just not going to be competitive in that market. And there has to be a different word too, because competitive is yes, but there's going to be a different kind of word too, because, you know, to have that like one step ahead every single time, I feel like there needs to be something stronger than just competitive. I agree. I mean, it's even, it's not even enough. I mean, Hmm. it really is. How do you stay ahead of it? You know? And I, I do think it's, it's hard for all of us just to state the obvious as we're crazed and we're barely surviving in the moment to moment. And that feels more the case now than ever, but it's almost about carving out some time or space or even extracurricular activities that allow us to have some brain space. You know, I mean, we talked about dance, but for me, that's unquestionably part of why that's so important in my life because it forces me to shut my brain off for work-related stuff because all I, I have to be focused on choreography. And if you don't shut that stuff off, you never have a chance for these sort of gems to come in. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like it's the shower. Everyone always talks about having good yeah. ideas on the shower, but, you know, or on a run or at a walk on the beach, you know, like those are the moments where all of a sudden, and I really believe like we are just channels for things. So mm-hmm. how, how do you create space for those things to come in? Yeah. And I mean, neurologically speaking or science speaking or however you want to say it, like that part of your brain cannot function if you are stressed out because then it just kicks you right back to, you know, fight or flight or, you know, whatever term you want to use on that. So again, I mean, yes, the shower example, I feel like everybody uses it. I, I've used it like 15,000 times because it's what people can relate to. There's, I have a notepad in my shower that hangs, it's waterproof for exactly that reason (laughs) yeah. or driving voice memos, you know, all of that stuff, but just know guys, it's not, we're not just talking kind of woo woo. There's science behind that as well. So leaving the white space, you know, allows you to breathe, which allows you to stay one step ahead, which people think, I think it's contradictory to what they're, they're thinking, but it does work. Um, all right. So can we switch gears to the book? I'm really excited <laughs> to talk about it. All right. So you wrote this beautiful book, The Feminine Revolution with um, Catherine Connors, who I have now become newly obsessed with as well. She's probably thinking I'm a little crazy. That's okay. I'll take it. because <laughs> She's fantastic. Um, you know, and I just, I liked the fact that you went about redefining feminine qualities as kind of these sources of power because people tend to put them in buckets, right? feminine, masculine, this or that one's weak, one's stronger, you know, and you really did a great job of combining the history lessons, the calls to action, the personal development, all of the things wrapped up in kind of this new spin of what femininity really is. So can you just tell us a little bit about your motivation for, for writing that, you know, and, 
what she wanted readers to walk away with. Thank you. Well, I love your summary of the book because <laughs> you're hired. You're hired. <laughs> you're going to be my publicist. Um, so we, so everything I think stems from a personal experience. And I felt like I talked about those big ad agencies in New York. That's really where it all started for me, where I felt like I had to show up as this certain version of Amy in order to thrive. And and, you know, whether it was the performance reviews that said, oh, you shouldn't take things personally, you shouldn't be so sensitive, or whether it was my inevitable moments of crying and feeling like that was literally the worst thing on earth and I was never going to be taken seriously again. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is I built up this armor and I felt like I had to essentially create a new version of myself that was going to thrive in a quote unquote man's world. Yeah. While the real me is mush, I am super sensitive. I am a crier. I am very emotional. I, these are things that I, I feel are a part of me not. And, you know, I've been told I was sensitive from a young age by my mom, but I never, and I certainly don't think it was in a complimentary way, but I do feel looking back, like there were all these messages I was getting about the way I was that made me feel like I, the me isn't really okay. And then I had this moment about six years ago, I guess, at this point where I was like, maybe the issue is that I'm bringing this tougher, armored, bossy Amy into my dating relationships. And that's why I've not met Prince Charming, which, you know, of course, that's what it took for me to begin this real exploration. But the fact is, you know, I started talking to tons of women and men, for that matter, about how we show up in the world and the word feminine and it was astounding to me. Everybody had their own versions of it. Of course, we all would define femininity in our own ways. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all a balance of masculinity and femininity. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Yes. Um, but the truth is everybody was struggling in their own individualized ways with showing up fully and showing up authentically because there were, there are parts of us that we consciously or unconsciously are holding back because we feel they're not welcome. Right. And so that was really the impetus for writing the book, because knowing that everybody was struggling with the same thing and realizing that, of course, we're all going to be our best if we show up in an authentic way, it felt like a real opportunity. It was also at a time when there were all these other conversations around feminism and female empowerment and equal rights and women's rights, all of which are super important, but nobody was talking about this other F word of femininity. And it felt like a big gap because, and in fact, even as we were selling the book and in subsequent conversations, there are so many women in particular that resist the word feminine. It almost feels for some like a step back. And to me, that's exactly the reason that this book needed to exist is because until we can acknowledge that these words, whether we want to live in a world where these things don't exist or not, we don't. Exactly. The fact is society has for many, many years rewarded and celebrated masculine qualities and has denigrated feminine qualities. And so we basically took 21 of these qualities and showed why they had been historically considered feminine, why they had been considered weak, and then turn that on its head to show that they are in fact our superpowers. And that by leaning into our sensitivity or emotionality or being a dreamer or being mothering or being controlling all these different ways that were labeled, we actually can be our best. And and power is a really interesting concept because- it's always been assigned to more masculine men and masculine qualities. And 
my bigger wish and desire and mission is that someday we can see a more balanced version of power at the top, whether that's at the top of politics or business world, et cetera. And the only way that can happen is if it starts with each of us. Yeah. Finding power within. In regards to power, would you agree? Like, because I think the, the, it's such a dirty word, right? Like it's got such a connotation behind it because it's something to acquire instead Mm -hmm. of something that you just innately have within. But if you can't admit to your point, if you can't admit to, I don't know, three quarters of the qualities that you embody, then it automatically gets pushed to this attainable thing when it's completely unattainable to begin with, because you're denying yourself and around and around we go. Right. So it's, it's this dirty word. And even I, I hear myself when I give it in talks or I say it in coach to, to clients or whatever, I cringe on the inside because I know I've been like, you know, kind of formulated over years to not want it because it's bad or it's corrupt or it's so many limiting beliefs. But, you know, to your point, would you agree that it's more of an internal out instead of an external in thing, right? A hundred percent. You know, I, that's truly that's truly the key. And it's funny because as you were talking, I was thinking about something that I feel strongly about, which is, and it doesn't mean I don't ever use the word, but the word empowered implies that someone else is giving you the power, but powerful, (laughs) you know, if you, we have the power within, as you said, so it really is about unlocking and unleashing that power and understanding it and using it to our advantage, you know, and really not feeling fearful of showing ourselves because we think that won't be accepted. And the fact is it, no, what we can't do this in an, on an Island, you know, it requires all of us creating this dialogue and a conversation and a space and operating principles. I mean, even in the workplace. So I work with mostly women, most of my team is women and, and really they know that crying is completely acceptable and that, that certainly feminine qualities, but any qualities are welcome. And and it's important. You know, we really, I, I, as a boss, I have to create space for that for my team. And I have to, I have to actually cultivate it. So one of the chapters is about intuition, which often is not taken seriously in the workplace. Um, and, and by the way, why would it be, you know, I mean, there hasn't been a culture that has celebrated our intuitive powers. You can't measure it. You can't put a smart goal against it. So therefore, even though you probably could, if you really tried, like, and you found the patterns of it and you took the time, but it's not as measurable as, you know, a guaranteed ROI or something you can show with numbers. Right. So it's, and it's in the same bucket to me as like soft skills why we always cultivate the tactical stuff. We always cultivate all that other stuff. And we forget that there's like a, a fucking part of my French, but a fucking person behind it, which always blows my mind. So kudos to you as a leader, just period yeah. for doing that. Cause wow. it just, it's something that boggles my mind when we try to take the people out of the business that is run by people. <laughs> yeah. I'm so with you on that. Thank you. But you, it really is like, probably from personal experiences, not feeling like the person was fully embraced that caused me to go there, you know, but so, so just following this intuition thread through, it's incredible how, I mean, first of all, I'm sure like me, you live with your intuition and you 
have you have learned to trust it and that isn't something necessarily that happened overnight i mean as kids we do but then it's kind of squeezed out of us and then here we are again as adults now mm-hmm. relearning how to trust our intuition and um so one of my team members does a lot of the negotiations for us and she comes into my office and often she will say I'm working on this contract. What's the right number to start with in the negotiation or what should we work towards? And I say, what does your gut tell you? And nine out of 10 times, her numbers are exactly the same as mine. And so, and by the way, mine are just from my gut too. So the fact is, um, you know, it does, that's the kind of behavior and, and sort of space that allows people to cultivate it. And, and I feel like, again, we have to do that for each other, you know, even in friendships, not just in the workplace. Like how do we, when we're, instead of trying to help solve problems for everybody all the time, what if we're just asking them to find the answers within, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, and that's, and that's the biggest trend. And I was just speaking to somebody about it yesterday. Cause it's, it's one of kind of the things that pisses me off about coaching about the coaching space or the consulting space, maybe not so much consulting because their job is to tell you how to do it. But coaches, that is not your fucking job to tell people how to do it. It is your job to lead and to, you know, make them feel powerful in their ability to trust their intuition and to trust their knowledge. So if we had people just walking on this earth, having conversations about that, like we're having right now, I just, can you imagine the amount of just incredible things people would do and the mistakes that maybe, you know, that wouldn't reinforce that your intuition sucks, like that wouldn't be made, you know, because you second guess yourself when it, when it falters. It's so true. It's so true. And the only way we trust it is because we see the success in trusting it, then we trust it more. So uh, it is really, I think it's a huge opportunity, honestly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's not intuition. I think we need to take this, take the stigma off of intuition too, because like you said, people like, oh, intuition, that's woo woo, or it's this, or it's that. Well, it's gotten a lot of us pretty damn far. Like you just said with that sales pitch, right? Like I know for myself, and I'm sure you can speak to something similar that when I start to feel overwhelmed, when I'm underwater, when I'm making decisions that all of a sudden I'm like, these don't feel aligned with anything that I want to do, or they just feel icky. That is my intuition. That is my gut saying like, get back on the Island. Like, what are you doing? And if we, again, if we could just, just listen, just listen, ladies and gentlemen, just listen. <laughs> but... so true. And also not only like the reason you're at that point is because you weren't listening to your gut when you made all those decisions. I do it all the time where I say yes to everything. Yeah. And then at, sometimes moments after I say yes, I'm like, why on earth did I say yes to that? In yeah. fact, and I don't like going back on my word. It's one of my big it things. So whenever I'm now, I'm now I'm stuck living with it, dreading it, whatever right. it is, probably dreading it more than is even necessary because I'm actually just aggravated for myself for having not listened. And so yesterday I, this woman said, your problem is that you're not breathing. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. it's that simple. Really? But yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yes. But, yeah. Okay. Simple and complicated because you're dealing with humans and behavior and stuff like that. So yes, it's simple. And, and the task itself is simple, but remodeling or reconfiguring your entire being to interject that it's not simple. <laughs> That's hard as hell. Yeah, it's so true. Especially when you're just a go, go, go 
type of person where yeah. so like so often the, I think the only way I can get it all done is if I just put my head down and get it all done, you yeah. know, but, yeah. but even to just interject some breaths, I can see why that would make a big difference. So, and yeah. not just breathing as an, obviously I'm breathing, but like conscious, take a step back, take a breath, like all the time, you know, yeah. I'm going to work yeah. on it. I mean, there's a reason meditation is so valuable for people. And, you know, and, and again, we don't have to overcomplicate it either. It's, it's exactly what you just said. It's, it's taking, if you don't like the word breath, take beat, put the word beat in there, whatever you need to do, pause, whatever it is, but there is something very grounding about the physical act of taking the breath in and it grounds you right right to, I guess, source, you could, you could say that from a spiritual perspective or just back to yourself, um, if that's more your cup of tea, but yeah, if you can't, if you can't slow down long enough to actually assess the situation, then chances are you're probably going too fast, (laughs) which is a shitty thing to tell you and me, because I'm similar to you where I hate slowing down. Yeah. Well, you realize though, sometimes if you slow down, you get more done. You know, I, I know this rationally, you know, and it's just, I think it's a great reminder. Like, honestly, the physical act of breathing is really, it's energizing. It's physically important. You know, like we're not often breathing all the way down, you know, like taking these short breaths. And it's amazing how great you feel if you take like a full, all the way down to the bottom of your stomach, you know, you really feel like a different person. So you do do. all breathe together. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's funny. I always use this play on, what is it? FDR, whoever said like the or the, the country song, when you're going through hell, keep on going. And I'm always telling clients, I'm like, no, 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 stop. <laughs> it's like, if you're going through hell, stop and take a fucking beat and then continue on. Like you, sometimes there's a time to push through, but not all the time. Um, can we shift slightly? Cause there's something that I want to discuss out of here. Um, whereas just because I have two boys at home and I love the fact that you guys, you know, you kind of, you kind of captured both sides and you took the male female out of this. Right. And you said like the new feminine understands that you can be for women without being against men, which wow. I get, I've gotten myself a lot of the time. How can you be so pro women when you have two boys at home? I'm not, I'm, I'm pro everyone like embodying all of the things that you guys said in this book. So can you speak a little bit more to kind of that, that sense that you interjected in here? Yeah, I'm really happy you brought it up because the book was targeted to women for sure. I mean, the irony is there were all these conversations going on about the importance of men being able to show their vulnerability and sensitivity, but there were no conversations going on for women about that because there was a presumption that we were already doing it. Yeah. That said, the, the win is for all of us to be able to find this more balanced, authentic state. And Catherine has a son. So that was very front and center for her. Um, but really, as I mentioned before, we're all this balance, this unique concoction of masculine and feminine. And it's really, it's what makes it interesting. It's what makes it an interesting conversation. It's like, it, it's so much of this is about cultivating awareness and creating space for us to actually like take a look at ourselves and go, how do we show up in the world? And are we showing up fully? And that is just as important for men in some cases, maybe more important for men who may not be wired to do as much overthinking as we are as women. 
where we've probably done the analysis a million times. Maybe we haven't looked at it through this lens, but, but yeah. And it's cool because I have a number of men who read it and were like, we need the exact same book for men, you know, which I think it makes sense. I just, I do feel like the win is for men and women to be growing together, yes. you know, and not for not to be like, there has to be to some degree, this, is, this is just something I'm, I personally think about. We didn't write it about it in the book, but um, the separation and the journeys are separate. You know, that's, that's important that like, it's a good thing actually yes. for men have space and, and groups and the rest of it. So they can do their work and women have our space and our group so we can do our work. But the only way we're ever going to make maximum progress is when we're doing that together because that's the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's again, it's because I feel like people like things in little neat boxes, right? They like this over here and this over here, which to your point, there's, there's a point for that because we have all different kinds of traits. We're wired differently, things like that. Fine. But you know, I, I just really feel like a lot of our society has missed the point that it's human beings, period first and foremost. And then, you know, the subcategories are however you want to divide it, but it's like, we go right to the subcategories and we forget that some of the overlap that's between everything, which is a shame because again, imagine the amazing things that could be happening. If you could, you could allow a man to bring his feminine qualities or, you know, stuff to the table and a woman to be masculine without trying to be a man or, you know, whatever that could be, it gives permission to just you know, leverage so much more. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent and see this much broader spectrum of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think to some people it's just scary, right? It's a scary thing because folks fear change a lot of the times and it's a disruptive, it's a disruptive concept. I, I have to say, I loved when you guys called Eve a disruptor in the beginning of the uh-huh. book out of Adam and Eve. I'm sure people are potentially cringing at what I just said. I know my parents were when I told them, <laughs> You know, it's, it is all about who was the storyteller in different situations and who was not, you know, so it it was a really interesting way to look at things. Um, You know, as we're kind of, because I know we've been talking for quite some time and I don't want to keep you, but what is kind of, if you had to, you know, give me one last kind of thing to send it home from the book, because there's so much more and I'm going to put the link in the notes too, for people to read it. But what is kind of the one main thing you wanted people to walk away from this with? To me, the win is if people take a step back and do the work to say, are there parts of me that I'm holding back because I feel like I've gotten negative reinforcement over the years about it, or I perceive it not to be welcome in the workplace, or my mother made me feel bad about this, whatever the things are, and do an exploration with it and, and actually play with it a little bit and, and see what happens if you start to lean into that a little bit. And, and, you know, again, the book gives 21 different examples, but there's so many more, I'm sure. Um, It's really about unlocking some of these things that might be, again, holding us back. I would describe it that way from being our full selves. So I, I think it's all about starting the journey and this is a different lens. We've done a lot of corporate speaking and 
when I sit in rooms with these women, particularly in it's mostly women, some men too, but in these male dominated environments, they are so relieved to hear that everybody is experiencing this in yeah. their own ways, but that they're all in it together. And, right. and even the fact that a company brings us like a visa or an Adidas or an ESPN brings us in to have this conversation is a sign that things are moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Because suddenly it means we can open up a dialogue about how do we show up in the workplace and why is it a problem? I mean, the crying thing like this, I have to say this too, because I'm so obsessed with the crying thing. Yeah. As we know. Yeah. Me too. Um, Me too. I, oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, crying is kind of the ultimate because everybody would think that crying in the workplace is literally the worst thing you could ever do. But let's start at the beginning. Has there ever been a moment ever in the history of time where someone woke up one morning and said, I hope I burst into tears in my boss's office today? The answer is no. No, it's usually it was, like a watershed moment, literally in a figure. Yeah. Like it's literally like you're, you have been filled up to the point where that is your last like damn breaking. Usually. Exactly. Exactly. And guess what? That's human yeah. and humanity is okay. So instead of us sitting around obsessing over being human in the worst sort of ways, what if we reframe it so that it's about how people experience the crying? So I'll, let's use a performance review as an example where we have a boss and an employee and the employee is distraught, starts crying. Mm -hmm. What if the employee could say, I'm getting emotional right now because I care so much about this job. And I was hoping for a better review or I'm crying right now. Cause I thought I was going to get a raise. What do I need to do in order to make that happen? And what if the employer, the boss could say, Hey, Hey, I see you're getting upset. What can I do to help? Everything's great. What can I do to help? Or, yeah. or I want to better understand you lean in both parties, yeah. lean in, create more of a connection uh, that moment can be something they walk both walk away from feeling closer, more connected, like they better understand each other, which is super powerful. Right. And it's the right. opposite of what normally happens. So like if everyone takes one thing away that your crying situations can be managed better in a way that actually makes you closer to people. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's uncomfortable. We're not saying it's not uncomfortable folks, because it can be, because when somebody cries in front of you, just know it's triggering all your crap. But the minute that you make it about you is the minute you've lost the ability to connect in, in the room with the two people, right? Because that's the person crying is the person emoting it. And also it's not your job to instantly fix it either. Can we just say that too? You just have to, you know, I love the phrase, hold space for it. That's it. And I understand that is a hard thing to do, especially for anybody in the corporate world who's listening or in, across the board, because it's vulnerable. It feels weird, but the more you do it, the more you can do it. Yeah. Well, um, you know, thank you so much for bringing, I love the crying example. It is like the epitome of all, I don't know any woman who has not felt that. Cause I know I'm an angry crier when I get so pissed off and just, it just hits and you don't want to feel bad about that. So, you know, but it's, it is a practice. So thank you for all of this wisdom folks. You need to go buy the book, male, female, whoever, whatever your identity is, go get the book because if, if anything, it just makes you, as Amy said, ponder and pause around things. So tell people where they can find you, Miss Queen of Clubhouse too, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much of a Queen of Clubhouse anymore, but I am Amy K. Stanton everywhere on Clubhouse, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. 
Uh, my website is stanton-company.com. The book can be found on Amazon, The Feminine Revolution, and all booksellers near you. Love it. And I'll be sure to drop it in the notes, folks. And if you're in the Surviving Entrepreneurship group, you will get a direct link dropped in there as well. So Amy, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much. I loved it.